Thank you, Ruth. <clears throat> and uh, thanks again for the worship. You guys really sound great. And um, don't you wish you could sing Christmas carols all year round, just about? They're so great. I just, it's almost disappointing we only get to sing them once a year. Before we look into God's Word, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, this has been an, uh, an exceptionally tumultuous year um, and full of war and, and uncertainty. And Father, we choose to put aside our anxious thoughts this morning and pause to be still in your presence. And we pray as the, the psalmist prayed to show us your unfailing love. <clears throat> Lord, grant us your salvation and we will listen to what you say. For we know your promises are of peace are to your people. And so we take that by faith. <clears throat> we invite Christ, the light of the world, to come into again into our lives uh, and into our beautiful but dark and broken world. Father, we ask your light to illuminate our darkness. And I'm going to ask our congregation this morning to think of some people whose lives are dark and difficult right now. And in silence, just name those people to the Lord. Father, we name them before you, before you, and we ask that the light of life illuminate their darkness. And Father, we think of our nation and what has caught our attention in the news, and, and we want to take some time to name that before the Lord. Light of life, illuminate the darkness in the place where we live, the place we call home. And we thank you, Father, that you have sent your Son to save us. And we ask that may the hope of Jesus be born again among us in the new year and in the ones that we love. Thank you, Lord, that you have come again in glory, that all the kingdoms of the world will be your kingdom. We pray that others will see it as the hope and get glimpse of your kingdom in our lives this morning and this week. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for filling us fresh every morning. We give you the praise for taking care of us, for watching over us, and filling us with your spirit that empowers us, that gives us joy. And we pray that that love and joy overflows to others. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Like Kendra mentioned, uh, we kind of got cheated out of the fourth Sunday of Advent, <laughs> so we're doing it today. Uh, and uh, so we're going to look at some pa a passage out of Luke chapter 1 that, uh, that is a traditional passage that we read on the fourth Sunday of Advent, along with that was Psalm 103 that Ruth read earlier. Uh, there are several passages according to what they call the lectionary, where they have these suggested passages of the, of the, of throughout the church calendar year. And uh, so those are the passages that, we're, that we read on the fourth Sunday of Advent. And so we're going to look at that. And next Sunday is actually the Sunday after King's Day or Epiphany. Uh, in Latin America, they call it the Dia de los Reyes, the day of the kings. And so we will be 
talking about that next week as well. We'll be talking about the trip and the, uh, the, the meeting of the Magi and the Christ child next week. And so this is be your last chance to enjoy these Christmas decorations. Then we come all down, and it looks normal again. Unfortunately, it just, just brings cheer when, cheer when I come in and see trees and things. This is beautiful. So anyway, that's, that's the calendar. And then after that, in two weeks, we'll pick back up where we left off in Mark and continue on with uh, the book of Mark. But this Sunday, we are going to talk about um, Luke chapter 1, one of the passages that is recommended that uh, we read on... on um, on the fourth Sunday, and we're going to be looking at what is called the Magnificat, which is the, the song that Mary sang after she is announced, uh, announced that uh, she is going to be bearing uh, the Christ child. And, uh, of course, uh, kind of a mystery there of what's, what's going on there. Uh, every, most people are familiar with the Rorschach inkblot test, right? It's kind of almost a cliche in psychological and psychoanalysis, the idea that you look at an inkblot and you tell the psychologist or the therapist or the psychiatrist what you see in that ink blot, and it's supposed to tell you kind of about their personality or, or maybe their moral functioning or their background, you know, they kind of look like this, if you haven't ever seen them before, or, you know, things like this. Uh, well, we also have some theological ink blots that uh, I can throw out some words to you, and the way you d d respond to them and define them or how, what it means to you can kind of tell me probably what camp you fit in, what kind of Christian you are, your upbringing, that sort of thing. And they're going to look at two words this morning that are like uh, uh, Rorschach ink blots. They're like theological ink blots. Uh, one of those words is uh, Mary. You, you mention the Virgin Mary to somebody and you get their kind of response, you kind of see where they're coming from. Uh, it may be, you know, mother of God, you might think, or uh, a co-redeemer, some people would say, or somebody you, you venerate or that you worship, uh, somebody who's meek and mild, or you might come to mind purity, or maybe even submission, or maybe even bravery, uh, just all kinds of words. And how you describe that will oftentimes tell me, okay, you're that kind of Christian, or you come from that particular camp or that type of church. And uh, it it kind of varies throughout the, throughout the globe, actually, what kind of word responds to that. As a Methodist, we grew up believing just the fact. We believed the fact that of the virgin birth, that Jesus was born of a virgin. And that was it. It didn't, didn't matter anything else. You know, we didn't look at who the virgin was, and we didn't look at what the birth meant and what that signified. It was just something we're supposed to believe. And so we believe it in the virgin birth. And we kind of lose what all that is, how that is an important thing. But this is the beginning of the gospel. On the very first page of the gospel, we have this, this story. We have this person. We have this event. And so it is important. This is an important thing that we are supposed to believe in. But I was never really told why it was important. It's just something you were supposed to believe. Well, there's, it's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it has to do with the character of Christ as fully God and fully man. And we sometimes have trouble understanding that. Of course, we all have trouble understanding that, but we have trouble understanding why that's important. And it is important that he's fully man, and sometimes we kind of emphasize one side over the other. But I can't explain it, but it is important that he's fully man, that he's fully a person, because for him to experience what we experience, he has to be fully human. For him to suffer the way we suffer, he has to be fully human. For, us to have, for him to have joy like we have joy, he has to be fully human. 
And so it's very important that we emphasize the humanity of Jesus Christ. He did not go through this life unscathed, okay? He suffered like us. He is one of us. But at the same time, we say he is also fully God. And that's also important because if he was just a man, then how could he be a savior? So we have to keep those things in balance somehow. That's one reason why it's important to believe in the virgin birth. The other reason is that just the idea of the incarnate, the idea that this man is flesh, this is what keeps the gospel earthy. It keeps us grounded in it, and it's important that we realize what this is all about, that this was a person who started out as a fetus attached to uterine walls, who was born and Mary had to push, you know, that whole thing happened to him. And what this does is says that this is important. Our bodies are important. Material is important. The earth is important. It's not just out there, spiritual, ethereal gospel. It is down-to-earth gospel. So Mary is visiting Elizabeth. And she gets a, she gets a, or she, Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, her, her relative. And she gets a visit from the angel Gabriel herself, who tells her that she is full of grace. And that uh, she is going to have a child. And she says, you have found favor in God's eyes. And if I was her, I'd be thinking, well, this is an odd way to show favor, let me tell you. But this is what, this is the news she gets. And they say she is full of grace. One of the most stunning attributes of God she is full of. And this is not full of grace like a debutante, you know, kind of getting ready for the society and all that kind of, that kind of grace. This is grace that empowers, that enables, that actually does things. She is full of grace. This is grace that actually accomplishes something. And so when we think about Mary... We may think of these ideas of meek and mild and subdued and, and, and submissive and all those kinds of things. But if you look at what's going on in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, she is anything but quiet. She is edgy. She has a message that is going to upend the established order of the world. And I would argue that she is a prophet that we see Mary as a prophet first. There is a call, and just like when God calls a prophet, he doesn't consult them, he doesn't coerce them, he just commissions them. And he commissions Mary to take on this task. She is not only going to be the bearer of the the spoken word of God, as we will see in a minute, she is going to be the bearer, bearer of the living word of God. And she is commissioned like a prophet. And you go back and look at the old, the old prophets, they are, they are commissioned just like this. They, they, God calls Jeremiah from the womb, he says, to go and be, to speak to the nations. He calls Isaiah to be the, to be the people, to speak to the people. He calls Ezekiel. He says, Ezekiel, stand up, I'm talking to you. You're supposed to go and talk to the people and be, a, be my witness to the people. This is what he's telling Mary. He's telling Mary the same thing. She receives a call like the Old Testament prophets. And, like the Old Testament prophets, she protests. Jeremiah says, I, I'm too young. 
I'm too young. And Moses says, I can't even speak well. Why are you calling me? And Isaiah says, you know, my language is pretty salty. I don't know if I'm really the guy you want to you be proclaiming your word. And so we think that these prophets that protest and then Mary protests and says, look, I'm a virgin. And to me, she has the best excuse. She wins of all the excuses. And so she, he calls her and says, and she goes, I'm a, vir- I'm a virgin. He says, you'll be conceived by, you, you, the baby will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he always reassures the prophets. He doesn't reassure them with more training. He doesn't reassure them with eloquent speech or any of those things. He reassures them with his presence. And he says, I will be with you. And I will give you the words to say. That's exactly what he told Moses. And that's exactly pretty much what he's telling Mary. I will be with you, but in a different way. I will be with you. And so she consents. She agrees. That's what happens when when God reveals himself to us. That's what faith is. That we respond to his disclosure. We respond to his revelation. And that's really the other side of a, of a revelation. That's the other side of inspiration when we receive it and trust him to listen to him, to obey him. And trust him. That's what faith is. Where she is completely vulnerable and says, okay, I'll do it. And I believe that if we want to go far in our walk with God, we have to be vulnerable we have to be in the same position that mary was in and say okay i trust you i'm going to put myself out there to the ridicule to the scorn to the embarrassment and yes i'm engaged to a a, a very devout man who also comes along and she says i'm going to trust you that this is going to happen the way you say That's why the dual nature of Jesus is so great. And that's why the material, the the physical is so great. That Christ is that. And I think we Westerners, especially we Western Americans, we kind of have this love-hate relationship with our bodies. In one sense, we, we love it. In a sense, we hate it. And if you talk to Christians, some Christians, they'll say, oh, I can't wait till I get rid of this meat suit. That's not what happens. The promise is a resurrection, a body. And that's, that's for another sermon. But this is not anything new. Because one of the biggest and, and most forceful heresies that the church had to contend with in the early days is Gnosticism. And Gnosticism says that the body is bad, evil. It's a very dualistic way of looking at things. That body is bad, spirit is good, material is evil, uh, spiritual soul, that's the good thing. And if we want to transcend our bodies, then we have to somehow do something and, and, and ignore our bodies. And one branch would say, no, we have to pummel it in the ground and we have to defeat it. We have to punish it. We have to deprive it of good things. The other Gnostics, they said, well, the body doesn't matter, so you give it whatever it wants. I have a feeling that option was more popular. But, but that's what they thought, that either one of them, the body was bad and the spirit was good. And we got to be careful that we don't fall into that Gnostic heresy. And that's why this is so, so important, that Jesus, too, began as a cluster of cells. He grew organs. 
He grew organs because Mary ate protein and drank water. And this is really the scandal at the center of Christianity. Over whatever other religion or spiritual interpretation there is, this is kind of the scandal that the material matters, that at the center of our faith is a flesh and blood Savior. That's what makes it different. He is completely obliterating that division between the sacred and the mundane. They're coming together. And we wait the time when heaven and earth come together and we see the consummation of the kingdom. So following this commission, following the sending of, uh, of, of Mary to Elizabeth, she, she has this song, Mary's Hymn of Praise, or the Magnificat, is what, what it's called in Latin, beginning in verse 46. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in more, more, uh, more detail. Uh, the second word, justice. You can tell me what comes to your mind when you think of justice, and I can kind of fit you in and say, okay, I fit you into this category, into this cubbyhole, you know. Does it mean my freedom, my rights? Does justice, social justice mean socialism? Uh, does it, is it a sign of faithfulness to the gospel? Or is it a sign of forsaking the gospel? Is it punishment for crimes? Is it karma where everything kind of balances out in the universe sooner or later? We have to get our definitions from the scriptures. And this is where she comes in. In this wonderful song that pretty much turns the established order on its head. She says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has begun to rejoice in God my Savior. Because he has looked upon the humble state of his servant. And from now on all generations will call me blessed. Because he who is mighty has done great things for me, and as holy is his name. From generation to generation, he is merciful to those who fear him. He has demonstrated power with his arm. He has scattered those whose pride wells up from the sheer arrogance of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up those of lowly positions. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remember his mercy, and he has promised to our that he has promised to our ancestors, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. For years, um, for centuries, actually, the church has tried to soften Mary. I think to take the edge off a little bit. They have tried to make it a little bit nicer, because this is church clearly. A message of upheaval, of changing around, turning order on its head. The Russian czars, they wouldn't let, their, let this Magnificat, this poem, be read at Christmas because they feared what the people would do. In the 18th century, the Archbishop of Canterbury told the missionaries in India not to read this passage because in a country of such poverty, they were afraid it would cause riots. So we try to back it back and try to make Mary a little more innocent, a little more harmless. But it's edgy. She is edgy because this is a new ethic. This is a new order that she is calling for. And it starts off with, my soul magnifies the Lord. And I, I 
kind of spent some time, too much time probably, <laughs> and once I get stuck sometimes, I end up having to do really work fast on Saturday night or something, but I spent too much time uh, thinking about this phrase, my soul magnifies the Lord. Your Bibles might have translated praises or exalts, something like that. But the word actually literally means magnify. And I thought, well, how do you magnify the Lord? And I don't think that, that, that Mary is saying that my soul makes God bigger than he really is, like a magnifying glass. I think what he, she's saying is that my soul allows God to be seen more in his fullness by other people. And I was thinking about this and, and the... Um, I don't know why this movie came to my mind, but it did, <clears throat> of uh, The Phantom of the Opera, written by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Beautiful, beautiful uh, musical. I never saw the play, but Sue and I went and saw the movie. We were in Iowa, I think, when we saw it. And, and um, Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote it, and this actress, Emmy Rossum, played Christine, not Sarah Brightman, who played it on the Broadway. And... When she sings, think of me, it's, you know, the, in the movie, all the audience is just taken aback by her voice. It's just wonderful, beautiful, you know, and everybody in the movie theater were taken aback too because it was just absolutely stunning. And I think that's kind of how it is, I think, with Mary and God in a way because we're looking at Christine, Ros or Christine the character Christine, Emmy Rossum, and she's showing us what Andrew Lloyd Webber is like. She is showing us who he is and what he's trying to do. And we see what genius he is of writing this wonderful piece of music and what this beautiful screenplay. And I kind of think that's how it means with Mary magnifying the Lord. She's not adding to God, but we're seeing her soul and it widens our perspective. It lets us see who the author is. It lets us see who the composer is. And Mary is magnifying God because we get the bigger picture of who God is. Not the complete one, but we get a bigger picture of who God is. She magnifies, the, her soul magnifies the Lord. And then she goes right in with this joy. She says, it gives me joy to do that. It's like, it's, it's almost a rambunctious kind of word that's kind of a gone crazy sort of joy. Because there are these reversals. And there's five reversals here that, got, that keep upended here in the society. First of all, it's Mary herself. She is a woman of lowly estate. A poor woman who is now exalted by God. Total reversal. Then he says, the prideful get taken down. And most... <clears throat> And most of the biblical authors in the Old Testament see pride as sort of the core sin. This is where everything else falls apart because we're too much pride in our hearts. And Mary says, those get taken down. And then, he said, then she says, the powerful, the kings, the emperors, the Caesars, they will be brought low and the low will be brought up. And then finally, the rich will be driven away empty while the poor come and get filled. And finally, Israel itself will receive a blessing instead of judgment. So all those things get reversed. 
upside down what this is all about. So what is it that she's trying to say here? I want to back up just a minute. What I believe in those three middle ones of the pride and the power and the rich, I was kind of looking at those this week too and thinking, you know what? This is, these are the three systems that sort of manipulate and manage society. It managed the society back then. It manages our society today. Who are the pride in the Gospels? The religious leaders. And I think what Mary is talking about, she's targeting religion. The pride that comes with the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the pride of religion. I think she's talking about the problem of power and the abuse of economics, of money. And all three of these things get manipulated to oppress people, to control people, and to hurt them. Amen. And it can be, and he is bringing them down. Richard Rohr says that religion is a great place to hide from God. And I think he's right there, that we can really hide from God through our religion. And then the money manipulates, and the politics manipulate, and I think today it's just like it was in the first century. And I think that's what she's getting at. So what is it that God is saying about these reversals? Is God saying that I, I only love poor people and I hate rich people? No, he is not saying that. He's not saying that. He's saying his love has, knows no, no, no prejudice, no favorites. Okay? It's for everyone. What it does say is that God cannot stomach injustice. That's what it's saying about God. He cannot stomach injustice. He can't allow it. It's kind of like if, our, um, if we have you know, several children and one is chronically ill, who's going to get the most attention? The one who's hurting. Doesn't mean that you love the others any less or any more. It's just that the hurting ones get the attention. And I think that's what, what she's getting at here. God cannot stomach injustice. His righteousness means, so it's righteous, it must be righteousness. His righteousness means that God is in a never-ending pursuit to put things right. He is constantly working to right the ship, to put things right. And it will come complete one day. But right now, it is working to put things right. It's interesting that all the verbs here are in the past tense as if it already happened. And I think what Mary is saying here is that it's just as good as it already happened. It, his promises are that good and that sure that they will happen. In fact, they have happened. They've happened with Mary as she was a lowly who's been lifted up. And that's an example for us. Tells us that it, Christ comes to the broken places in us and in the world. This is where he is needed and this is where he goes. He comes to our broken places. He comes to the broken places in the world. It's not that he loves one group of people more than another group of people. He's just that he is, he is concerned about the hurting. He is concerned about the pain. The place where you are hurting, that's where you will find him. What does it say for us? that we are to abandon our hyper-individualism. 
that we live in a society and we are concerned about all people. Our Pledge of Allegiance says, justice for all. And I think this, they might have got it from Mary, you know, that we need to provide justice for all, not just for me, not just my rights, not just my freedoms. We look for it for everyone. Everyone deserves it. Abandon our hyper-individualism. We have a new set of eyes. Mary gives us a new set of eyes to see the world, that we can see the world through suffering eyes. We can see the world through poor, poverty eyes. We can see the world through oppressed eyes because we can see it through her eyes. And finally, we are both and people. And what do I mean by that? <clears throat> that we are both heart and head. Not just head, not just heart. We are both and people. We are mystics, and yet we are grounded in the earth. We are contemplatives, but we're also people of action. We are spiritually alive, but we're also to be socially active. That's how I see this. We even live in an already not yet time. We live in a, in a time where the kingdom has been inaugurated, but it is not yet fully consummated. We are both and people. That yes, it is spiritual. Yes, it is contemplative. Yes, it is even be mystic, but it is also grounded in real life. And we are to be active. That we work for justice for all. I'm going to close just with a cautionary tale. <clears throat> that kingdom goals must be pursued through kingdom ways. In other words, the end doesn't justify the means. The Bible talks a lot about the means. Back in the 60s and the 70s, <clears throat> a lot of people took this as a, as, a, as a manifesto, and there was a sort of leftist manifesto and they took this to advocate revolution and violence and fighting to do this and turn things upside down. This is not a manifesto. This is not a Marxist manifesto. This is not something that gives us permission to create violence. Uh, I've sat through conferences when I was in college where um, uh, they were advocating uh, support and trying to draw money and support to support the revolution in El Salvador. This is back in 76, 77, something like that. This is not what God is talking about. It's not a manifesto. They would act in Jesus' name and say this is what Jesus said, but they didn't do it the Jesus way. And we have to be careful that we can have these goals of, of the kingdom and, and say we're, we're acting on Christ's behalf, on Jesus' behalf, but we have to do it the Jesus way, the way he did it, not with violence. And my fear is that we're in danger of seeing it on the right now. Yeah. And we've got to be careful there. If we're going to accomplish something, if we're going to look for kingdom goals and manifest the kingdom, we need to do it kingdom way. We need to do it Jesus way and so what do we do when when the rallies are over and the idealism dies out 
and the relationships have been broken, where are we now? We have to go beyond that. When the relations fall apart, we know that something is wrong. Jesus clearly forbids violence. But he also calls us to be ready to suffer if necessary. We have to be ready to do that. Ready to suffer at the hands of others. So this must go deeper than just good intentions. We've got to have a deeper reservoir than just good intentions. And we have to be ready for what, it, what happens. The revolution in, in El Salvador died out. And they've lived in peace for the most part <laughs> since then. What was the turning point? The assassination of Oscar Romero. He was a bishop of the Catholic Church who spoke out against violence and he was assassinated. He paid the price. And peace came in. People were thinking, this has gone too far. We have to be ready. I don't think any of us will probably face that in our lifetime here. But it could happen. Things like this could happen. That Christ's love is a force for truth and holiness. And it will be a force for truth and holiness if we do it Jesus' way. We have to do it His way. I hear a lot of people say, well, we've got to put God first. Love God first and then everything else. That sounds wonderful. It sounds pious but it's just a cliche. That's not how it works. We love God through everything and everyone. Because if we just say, oh, God, I love God first, then we suddenly have compartmentalized it. We've put God in this compartment and then everything else in this compartment. But the love of God has to flow through everything we do, all of it. Justice, to me, if I'm going to define justice, that that. Rorschach word, I would say that it's the love of God in public. And that's really what justice is. It's when the love of God meets injustice. It's just loving in public. It is not an extra. It is essential. And it goes all the way back to the oldest parts of the Bible, and it follows all the way through. And I'm not saying that we all have to get out and march or or organize or raise money for all this stuff but this is what i do say we have to be in a place to provide concrete care for people who need it wherever you are i'm not an organizer i'm not gonna you know put a lot of political signs in my yard or anything like that go ahead if that's what god's called you to do go ahead but i know i can care for people around me in a concrete way. I can do that. It is simply love in public. This candle is called the candle of love. And what Mary does is just take it in a public way and not just the people that are close around us. It is a right order of relationships. It is a, we cannot let Karl Marx defying justice. We can't let even the U.S. Constitution, as wonderful as that document is, we can't let that define justice. We look to the scriptures to define justice. That it is 
the means and not just the ends. That it is mutuality, not coercion. That it is humility that we act, not in dominance. It's through generosity and not greed. It's through compassion and not indifference. It's through restoration and not retribution. That's the Jesus way. And so, may God be magnified in our souls. May people look at our souls and see God magnified. That is the main point, I think, of this, that we live the Magnificat. We live the Magnificat. That's Christianity 101. Our, um, <clears throat> our culture hasn't really changed all that much, I don't think, since the first century. I think the human beings are pretty much the same. Um, instead of dominating and manipulating, we do it another way. We do it another way to beat the system. Religion is a great place to hide from God. Don't let church be a good place to hide from God. Live the Magnificat. Let your soul enlarge God. Let your soul magnify Him. People will see it. Like I said, we're not on the same level of engagement, but we all can do concrete acts of care. And I believe the church, that is supposed to be the otherworldly community that people see. And I think that's what we are called to do. The task of the church is to serve as the best example we possibly can of what God can do with a group of human beings. What God can do with us, that's what the church is. That's what the step of the church is. And so when people step into our home or they step into our building or they step into our Bible studies or our fellowship or whatever it is, when they step into that, that they see that this is an otherworldly community. It's not founded on antagonism, but it's founded on grace. It's not a, a community of gossip, but a, but, a, but a community of honor. It's not a community of selfishness, but a community of generosity. It's a community of justice not just hyper-individualism. It focuses on compassion and care. This is all on page one of the Gospels. And I think we need to pay attention to it. This is how it starts with Mary's song. And that may, may our souls magnify the Lord. That is my prayer. Father, we are thankful for your goodness. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for rescuing us. Father, help us not to be afraid. Not to be afraid that people will see you in our souls. It's in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Tommy. Um, with us talking about the love of God and focusing it on it today, um, the song, The Love of God, came to mind. So would you all stand with us if you are able? We're going to close with the love of God. <laughs> 